You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 2 Peter. We're calling Be Diligent. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois. So if you were here with us last week, as Derek was leading us into this, 2 Peter chapter 3 really has three distinct sections of it. And so as Derek talked with us about the last one, we were talking about scoffers and, uh, and the impact and what they see and how they feel about things. And they're questioning what God has said. Now, if I'm real honest, I don't think that catches any of us off guard that they're scoffers, right? We've seen them, we've experienced them, we hear them. And the question keeps coming back to this, is you say God's going to act, but we don't see it. And he said it a long time ago, and we don't see God interacting or engaging our world, right? I mean, so why do you guys hold on to this? Now, if we're real honest, I think you and I probably look around, and we're not surprised by the scoffing. What happens to us, though, is every time we hear that scoffer, right, is there a sense where there may be a part of us that says, yeah, God, why aren't you doing something? God, why don't we see it? There's so many false teachers running around. And we know that they create suffering for us. We feel that. And at the same time, as we recognize that they're leading other people astray. So not only for us does it create difficulty, but we see the impact that they're having on the world around us. That's hard. It leaves us asking questions. God, where are you? Why are you not doing something? I came across this research uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's from February. And I'm just going to tell you, as we move into this passage today, if I can emotionally prepare you, the subject matter is pretty heavy today in this passage. That's where Scripture takes us. So when I come across something like this, six concerning trends in global Christianity dated just last month, is it ought to raise our ears up a little bit, such as this. Christianity is growing, but only at the same rate as the global population. Well, that means our percentage isn't changing. We're not having these moments where we're seeing these huge revivals break out. True, the world population is growing, and the numbers of believers are growing consistently with the population growing, but we don't see that we're really making headway, right? Which goes to this. Christianity is growing, but not as fast as some other religions. So the population's growing, our numbers proportionately are staying the same, but there's other religions that their proportions are not remaining the same. What's the impact of false teachers? There's a growing uh, list of people that are joining the ranks of these false religions. Christianity is growing on some continents, but is all but stalled in most. And we hear some of those statistics, and you and I can look around and we can celebrate, hey, look what God's doing in this part of the world. And we need to celebrate that. But at the same time, what it means is we're celebrating isolated incidents where we see him growing in certain parts of the world, but in the vast majority of the world, that simply isn't happening. Christians are going to the cities of the world, but not as fast as the cities are growing. We're just, it feels like we're falling behind. And you probably have felt that too. Number five, this one kind of stabs a little bit, right? Too many non-Christians still don't know any Christians. Now, if I could change this a little bit, if you would allow me to flex this statement a little bit, let's say it this way. Too too many non-Christians do not have any Christians in their life 
who are lovingly pursuing them, who are invested in them, who are caring for them. Let's, let's just change it a little bit. Maybe they know somebody who is a believer but is not investing in them. And then number six, two billion people completely unevangelized in this world. Population's growing. We're keeping our proportion moving forward. We've got areas of the world where we see some things happening. The vast majority of the world, we don't see those things happening. We're not really engaged with people who don't know the Lord. We fall into those holy huddles. We fall into those roles where everybody we hang out with, go get coffee with, go have lunch with, PTA, kids, play sports with. Everything seems to be revolving around people who are believers. Where are we invested in this? Because this number of 2 billion people who are completely unevangelized is scary. If we understand Scripture, it's scary. So what do we do with all this? How do we lean into this? And I would invite you to turn to, with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we move into this. Because I think we've got this question that you and I are asking, which is, Lord, what's taking so long? We see it. We're desperate for you to do something. Interact. Show up, God. Show the world who you are. We know who you are, but this world is mocking you. They don't see it. So we're asking you to show them. It's against that backdrop that, second, that Peter writes this passage, I think, in 2 Peter. It breaks down into two sections for us. And so we're going to read the first section and talk through that, and then we will move into the second section and talk about those verses. We're going to begin in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come, all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He begins, don't overlook this. You know this. We've said this before. Matter of fact, the psalmist already told us this. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past. Or watch in the night. I think Peter would want to say, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But we can be so forgetful at times. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. The world may not know this, but you, those of us of the faith, we know this to be true about our God. He gives us a simile, a thousand, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. It's so hard for us to grasp this, right? Because we're so finite. We live in minutes and hours and days. And so we judge everything against that. Most of you know that we had a group that went to Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago. We got back last week. And let me tell you, that was the longest plane ride of my life, an hour and 36 minutes. 30 minutes into it, I'm looking at my watch, I'm like, are we there yet? And if you've ever taken a road trip with kids, you know they do the same thing. Are we there yet? How much longer? Let me tell you, when you judge minutes against minutes and minutes against hours and, and hours against days, even waiting a few days feels like forever, right? Right? Here's the thing about our God. 
And that's part of what Peter is trying to say. God lives in an eternal present. So his timetable is time measured against eternity, which really isn't that long on the scale of eternity. So when we come to God and say, God, where are you? What's taking you so long? I think Peter would say, we need to take a step back. We need to recognize that God's timetable is not our timetable. He just works at a different level. And at the same time, I think part of what he wants to say for these false teachers that are accusing him of not keeping his promise. Now, maybe you've had this moment where I made a promise maybe to one of my kids, and I knew it was going to be off in the distance when I was going to have to fulfill that promise. But if you're the kid, you might think they forgot, right? So now you go up to them like, hey, Dad, remember? You said that you were going to take me somewhere. And I think that becomes who we are. God, hey, remember, God? I know I can be forgetful. I know that I don't know all things. I know that time has passed. And so I think that maybe, God, you forgot. Let me encourage you today. God's promises have no expiration date. He made them in eternity past. He recorded them for us in the scripture. He knows that his character is based on fulfilling these promises. And he does not forget. But it's really easy for those of us who are here looking at this saying, what are we doing? That's his first reason. God, what's taking you so long? His first answer is, it's probably not taking as long as you recognize because I look at all of eternity. Look at his second reason that he gives. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. We might look up and say, God, what are you doing? Where are you? God, do you not see? How about this one? God, do you not care? God, did you overstate your purposes? Maybe, maybe you thought you had the ability or the capacity to do something, and I'm not seeing it. God, God, maybe are you powerless to do anything here? And we get an answer that feels like he's being slow and inactive, and the answer comes back. He's not being slow and inactive. He's being patient and intentional. And don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that slow and inactivity equals patient and being intentional, because they're two different worlds. How do we know? Well, look at what Peter tells us there. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. You know, the only thing slowing God down from acting and bringing judgment is going to be this, his character and his patience and his heart. He's working a plan. You and I are looking around like, God, would you quit twiddling your thumbs and do something? And guess what God's answer is? Oh, I am so at work. You don't even know what I'm doing. You can't see what I'm doing. I'm not wasting time. I am at work doing what, God? Well, he tells us. Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that they should all reach repentance. Now, let me tell you, when I was in high school, our family went to New York City And I've got my mom and dad, and I have an older brother. And we went out to go visit the Statue of Liberty. And so as we're out there during the day, we recognize that there's a ferry going back into the city. And you've got to be on that ferry. Otherwise, the last ferry of the day, you get stuck out there. And it's getting to be that time. We're trying to go out there. We're trying to leave and and go back to the city. And my mom and my brother and myself are together. And my dad had gotten separated from us going to do something. And we're standing there at the ferry, and the ferry's going to leave. And we're running around with the idea that, some of you are following me, I don't want to spend the night at the Statue of Liberty. 
but we don't have my dad. And so I remember running around trying to go find him and saying, Dad, come on, it's, it's going. He goes, I couldn't find y'all. And okay, so here we go. And we're running back to the ferry. And what we know is this, when the ferry's gone, the ferry is gone. It's gonna be us at the Statue of Liberty. And we got there, thankfully, in time, but they had removed the plank to the, to the boat, so we ended up, I mean, it wasn't like Superman or anything, but we had, the boat was starting to pull away, and we're stepping over water to get on the boat. Now, let me ask you, for everybody who's on that ferry, you know how many people were concerned that there were two people left on the island? Two. <laughs> my mom and my brother. The other people, you know what they were doing, because I would have been doing it too. Come on, man, we got dinner reservations in the city. What? They knew what time the boat was going to leave. Why didn't they get here in time? That's on them. Now, I can tell you, that's not very compassionate, but I would have been there. When we're looking at God and saying, God, where, why are you not doing something? And Peter says, oh, it's not that he's slow. It's not that he's lost interest. It's not that he's twiddling his thumbs. No, 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 no. You know what's going on? He's being patient because he doesn't want anybody to perish. Because he knows that when the ferry leaves the dock, it's over. And the question for you and I is, do you care who gets on the ferry? Do you want more people on the ferry? And if we're really honest, there's times where we don't. If you know the story of Jonah, that God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. And then he says, no, then you're going to be swallowed by a fish. And then you're going to want to go to Nineveh after that. And he goes to Nineveh after that. And all of a sudden, he doesn't want to go into the city because he knew God's character. God, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were merciful. And I knew that if I went there to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh, that you were going to want to redeem them. And there's this incredible response. And now Jonah is sitting there and he's under a tree and he's kind of mad because God's exactly who he thought he was. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And God comes to him and says, Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And you know the harsh reality is if Jonah had said that, he would have said, no, no, I really don't care. I don't care that there's 120,000 people who are so spiritually blind, they don't know their right from their left. I just don't care. I think God throws in, hey, do you care about the cattle? No, I don't even care about the cattle. I just don't care. Either they get on the ferry or they miss the ferry. And I think if we're really honest, when we go to Jonah, and it's really easy for me, you own this yourself if, if you need to, it's really easy for me to look at Jonah and say, Jonah, quit being such a baby. And yet I see how many times I think I just don't care. You know what? We got dinner reservations in the city. It's their fault they didn't get on the boat. And now we hear the boat turning and God says, look, I, I could pull the boat away whenever I'm ready to. And I will one day. You know why I'm not? It's because there are 2 billion people in this world that are completely unevangelized. And they matter to me, Jonah. They matter to me, Lance. They're made in my image. Jesus died on the cross for them. And I'm left wondering, you know what, God, I don't see you doing anything. And he says, I'm at work. 
You just don't always see it. So he's making space for this repentance here that they should reach repentance. The question then is this, God, why is it not happening then? One of the comments or questions that we get uh, as leadership at, at a church frequently is this, right? You may have asked it before. How do I know the will of God? I've got to do this. I've got a business venture. I've got this going on. I, I, want to, I want to spend some time with this other person. How do I know if God's in that? Where should I go to school? What should I study? Should I take this business venture or not? And they want to know the will of God. And so first thing we've got to do is this. We've got to differentiate. Scripture talks about different wills of God. There's different ones, such as uh, there's three of them, actually. One of them is his moral will. These are the things that God would desire to happen in my life and in your life, his moral will. We see it in 1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's his moral will. That's what he would like for you and me. Now, if we're really honest, do we see that as the prevailing way that our culture interacts? No, that's his moral will. But there's this permissive will. It is the things that he permits to happen. Acts chapter 14, in past generations, he allowed all the nation to walk in their own ways. His moral will, I would like you to function within this capacity, that you would avoid sexual immorality because it's what's best for you. But I don't make you. I allow you to go walk in decisions that I know are not my moral will for you, but he allows it. He didn't make it happen. He didn't cause it to happen. He allows us to make decisions. It's part of being made in the image of God. We have a volition. We have an ability to choose some things. He says, I would like you to do this, but I'm not gonna make you because there's this permissive will. The third one is his sovereign will. It's what God ultimately chooses to happen. Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient time, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Okay? There's his moral will. This is what I would prescribe for you. There's his permissive will, what he allows us to do. His sovereign will, where he has the capacity to look and say, Look, whatever happens in that permissive will, I have the capacity and the strength and the ability and the power to bring about good in the midst of whatever that choice is. He's always at work, and he's always doing good things for those who know him and are called according to his purposes. That's how he functions. But when he comes back and says, this is what I want, so let me give you a verse. If you're like, I don't know, Tell me, moral will, permissive will, sovereign will. First Timothy chapter two, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his moral will. That's his heart. He wants us to move towards him. He wants to create space. God, why are you not acting? I'm keeping the boat at the dock because while you think I'm not doing anything, I'm actually at work wooing people to come in because my heart is I want everybody saved. There are way too many views out there that view God as this black robe deity, as a judge, and he's up there by, on the bench, and he's waiting to hit the gavel on our lives. That's not the portrait of Scripture. That's not his heart. His heart is that people would come to salvation. It was his heart for Nineveh. It was his heart for these people that Peter is writing to, and it's his heart for our world today. Two billion people. And we're looking around saying, God, why don't you act? 
And I think so often the impact what is, is, is what? God, it feels like we're slipping away. It feels like I've got this tenuous hold on your hand. God, I know, I know that you're there and I'm holding on to you, but as each day gets harder, I feel like my hand is slipping out of your hand. And Spurgeon would love to remind us of this. Don't make the mistake. It's God holding on to your hand. This does not risk. You're not at risk because you're trying to hold on to God with everything. We cling to him, but know this. You're firmly in his hand. He has you. And so we now have the opportunity to say, Lord, you know, I'm going to wait because I want, I want so-and-so to get on the boat. And if we're really honest, the two people that were on that ferry waiting for my, mom, for my dad and me to get back, you know why they were invested in the two of us? Because they love us. They know us. They care about us. Everybody else on the boat, they didn't care about us. But they didn't know us. So let's go back to the concerning trend of Christianity that most non-Christians don't know a believer. It's impossible for us to care about people that we don't know, that don't know the Lord. We can't have the, heart, the Lord's heart for them when we don't know them, which is why we've got to break out of these, these huddles that we exist in. God's heart is that he would bring salvation because the reality, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So let's talk about a couple of things so we can get a timeline of what we're talking about. We've shared these slides before. Incarnation is what we'd celebrate Christmas when Jesus came in the flesh. Ascension was after his resurrection, and that brought us into the church age. That's where we are now. There is absolutely nothing that has to happen before the rapture. Here's what the rapture is. The rapture, the clouds will, will scroll back and all of those who are in Christ, dead and alive, will get called up into the clouds where we will meet our Savior, okay? Nothing has to happen. It's why he can say that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Nothing has to happen for that to happen. And when that happens, it ushers in what's known as the day of the Lord, it's not a singular day. It encompasses all of what has blown up here on this timeline. After the rapture happens, we start the day of the Lord. There's seven years. There's something going on on earth. It's the tribulation. Many people will come to faith during the tribulation. It's going to be more difficult than it is now, but people will come to faith during the tribulation. And then in heaven, for those of us who were caught up in the rapture, there's a judgment seat of Christ where we're getting rewarded for what we did in the, in the faith. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but we're getting rewarded uh, for what we did in the faith. At the end of that is where the second coming of Christ is, where he comes down with angels and saints, and it's going to be an incredible scene, and it's going to launch a thousand-year time period. At the end of that is the great white throne judgment, okay? When we talk about the day of the Lord, it begins after the rapture with the rapture and goes all the way up to the great white throne judgment, okay? So let's look back down at our passage. But the day of the Lord, that period of time, okay, seven years plus a thousand years, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. How is it like a thief? Because there are no signs that have to happen for that to occur. It could happen now. It didn't, but it could have happened just then, okay? Come like a thief and the heavens will pass away. What does that mean? Scripture talks about three different levels of heaven. The earth's atmosphere, which we would see, where the stars and the planets exist, we would call that space. You can see that too. And then the third heavens is where God lives. It's his abode. 
When we talk about this, is that the heavens are going to pass away, we're talking about the first heavens and the second heavens, okay? So we have everything in our atmosphere, and we have space. We have the stars and the planets, okay? So let's look back down at our passage. Day of the Lord, come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, if I were to ask you to think with me about what that roar may sound like, We've heard various roars. You've been to the zoo, you may have heard a lion roar. Last week, there were people that had fires coming at their homes and they heard the roar of a fire. We had people in our area last week that heard tornadoes coming and they heard a roar. I don't know what this roar is gonna sound like, but let me tell you what the, what the word means. It means this, pertaining to a noise made by something that's passing with great force and rapidity with a rushing noise. This sound, I imagine, is going to sound awful. Why? Look back at your text. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, that's what my translation reads. If you're a person that wants to write in your Bible and you want to circle it, underline it, or even cross through it, the word heavenly actually isn't in the original text there, because he's saying this, is we've got the heavens and then we have the bodies, okay? So he's drawing a distinction between the two. So that kind of like bookends. We've got everything from the stars and the planets out there all the way down to the bodies. What does he mean bodies? Bodies mean this. It's any first thing from which others belonging to the same series or composite, the whole take their rise, an element or first principle. It means this, is we're saying everything from the stars and the planets that you can see down to the bodies. And he would say it this way. You take the letter of A, and every letter from B through Z are all going to be gone. You take every material thing. Let's begin with the atom, and then everything built upon the atom is going to be gone. Every principle and everything that flows from that principle are going to be gone. That roar is going to be that the heavens have passed away, and every other material thing in the universe will be burned up and dissolved. Can you imagine what that roar sounds like? It will be a catastrophe. That's how strong this is. And for the false teachers who are looking around and the false teachers are like, oh, God's not gonna judge. He doesn't show up. He's just so patient. I mean, he probably doesn't care. He doesn't know what's happening. And Peter says, everything's going to be judged. Everything will be judged. It all matters. It's going to be judged down to the atom. Stars, planets, all the way down to the atom, and everything that's in between those two. For the false teachers that are listening what's going on, the totality of the material world is going to go, and he tells us it's going to be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Scripture carries this theme of fire and purifying in what's left. We see it in the life of the believer when we have the, at the judgment seat of Christ during the tribulation when the church has been raptured as we see this story, but it's true across the board. Paul writes about it here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, now just think about it with me. If there is a fire, would you rather have a foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw? And Paul makes it really clear. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day, the day, season 
will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It's true for the globe. It's true for believers. Is that when we come back at this and he says it will all be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The question for you and me is what are we building with? Are we building with wood, hay, and straw that will be consumed by fire? Or have we built with something like gold, silver, and precious stones that can withstand the fire? That we've offered the Lord something of value. See, these words are significant. And for these false teachers that want to look up and say, oh, God's not doing anything. God will never bring judgment. Peter says, oh, he's bringing judgment. And it's going all the way down to the atom. It's all the way down. So I think the question for you and me would be what? Well, what do I do with this? That's the reality. That's the world that is to come. What am I doing? Where am I investing my time? What should I do? Well, I I think Peter hopes that you're asking that question because look at verse 11 because he's about to tell us. What do we do in this in-between? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's going ahead of us. We ought to be asking ourselves the question, well, if this is the end, then what, 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 what do I do? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, so what's my point? What's my motivation? What do I do with my life? Well, we figure out how to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. The world will give you a million things you can build with, which are wood, hay, and straw. How do we build with gold, silver, and precious stones? Well, he begins to tell us holiness and godliness. Holiness and godliness. Holiness, that thing that we've been set apart to be gods, that we would walk with them. Not set apart to the world. The world is set apart to the world. Those of us who made it onto the ferry, that we live as though we're people on the ferry, right? And so now all of a sudden, we're set apart to God and who He is and what He wants for us. That's the holiness. The godliness is that we live out His moral will, those things that He called us to, that we honor Christ in that, is that we look like Jesus is running around, that we have his eyes, we have his ears, we have his mouth, we use his words. And we live that out, set apart to his purposes. And now all of a sudden we can see, okay, this is what it looks like to live a life that is set apart to God, that looks like him. Okay, now we're getting our bearings a little bit. So we start looking down, say, okay, so that's what I'm gonna do. And then he uses some incredible words, waiting for and hastening. Now, the waiting for, we probably have a little bit better grasp on. All right, I'm waiting. Okay, I get it. The longer God waits, the more people come to faith. Okay, I can get behind that. So as I wait, and we might think that's passive, right? Okay, I'm just going to sit here. You got me. I'm going to go sit down on that bench under the tree over there, and you, God, come tell me when you're ready. Well, that's not what he says. We wait doing what? Set apart to God, set apart trying to look like God by acting and being Him in this world as we go and love and care for people. And we wait with great perspective, right? You know why? Because praise God, 
each time one of those two billion people make the step onto the boat. God's patience is not due to inactivity. It's due to the fact that he's at work in the lives of people who don't know him. So the desire is for them to come to faith. Okay? Well, I can get on board with waiting, but it feels tenuous. It feels scary. God says, I've got your hand. Lord, I feel like my hand's slipping out of your hand. It feels scary. God says, don't worry, I've got you. I've got you. So we wait. And then he uses this phrase, which just is outstanding, right? How many of, it, how many of you were grabbed by it? hastening the coming day? Hastening, right? Is there this moment where you and I can look up and say that hasten, hasten means to cause something to happen or to bring something into being? What in the world? How do we hasten the Lord's return? Following? He's being patient until the world has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And all of a sudden, what we look up and see is you and I have a part to play. It's more than just going and living by yourself in some cave somewhere, which we saw a lot of in Israel, to come back and say, you know what, just go be holy and godly in your cave. That's not the call. The call is to be holy and godly in the midst of a world where there's all these unevangelized and we have the opportunity to step in and help hasten the day? See, it becomes pretty significant. We've got a calling. We've got a calling to do as we wait. Yes, we're waiting. God's at work in me. He's at work in you. And he says, I want to use you for my purposes. So we come back to the question, what are you doing with your time, talents, and treasures to help hasten the day of the Lord? Because in the meantime, we, we're praying about it. God, bring it. God, hold on to me while we wait. God, I want you. Help me honor you. Help me be set apart uh, for your purposes. Help me conduct myself in a way that would honor you, living out your moral will in my life. And Lord, show me opportunities to make a difference in this world. Because there's two billion people unevangelized that are made in your image, and they don't know their right hand from their left. And Lord, you want them on that boat. Now, all of a sudden, we have a different way of thinking about it. How are we hastening that day? Where are we investing our lives? I got to tell you a pretty fun story that happened this week in the life of our church. Many of you be familiar with the story or the ministry of Young Life and, and the stories of how they've worked in our community. One aspect of Young Life is Young Lives. It's for teen moms and an opportunity to step into the, these girls' lives and love them and care for them and point them to Christ. And they take them to camp and they have an opportunity to spend a week with them and love them and help them feel like a high school kid in the midst of this, uh, of their lives. And so they get a chance to hear the gospel and get to have conversations. So that's going on in our community if you weren't aware of that. Our, in our church body, we've got a group called the Community Impact Team is that our leadership team has set aside a budget. And four times a year, the, our church, with a team of people on this community impact team, go through and, and figure out the best places to steward those resources in our community and ministries in our community. And so this week was when they took the money, the check, and went to the various places where they were offering gifts on behalf of the church. If you participate in the giving to this church, know this, you're helping hasten the day in this story. 
So they're looking around that morning, unbeknownst to us at the Young Life building, and they're talking about, you know what, we really want to do something great for these teen moms this year. We're going to do this Young Lives campus further away. It's more money. We don't have the money for it. We're just going to have to put it on the tab, and we're going to have to raise more money to make this happen. And they came up with a dollar figure for what that was going to be. A couple of hours later, two people, the head of our community impact team and one of our staff pastors who works with them, show up at the Young Life building and said, hey, good morning. We just want to bring you this check. And when Jason looks at the check, he looked at somebody else and says, how much were we behind? And that guy gave a dollar figure that is a significant dollar figure. And Jason pulls out the check and shows him, and it's the same dollar figure. God is at work. We have the opportunity to hasten the day for his return. Are we taking it seriously? Do we understand? Because in that moment, we took the time, talents, and treasures of this church body, invested in another ministry, and we're watching God do things. And consequently, there's going to be a group of girls that get to go away and have a great week with their babies, and they're going to hear the love of Jesus, and they're going to have a chance to hear the gospel. That's what we do. We wait And we hold on to him because he's holding on to us. We keep sharing the gospel. We keep praying because at the end of the day, we are about relational evangelism, not because people are projects. We care and love about people because they matter. They matter to him. They're made in his image, and we want to love them well. We want to invite them onto the ferry that's leaving. We know it's leaving. When's it going to leave? We don't know. Like a thief in the night, it's going to pull away. And when it pulls away, the opportunities are over. And it's that significant. We're going to be set apart to God. We're going to live out a godly life so that people see it. Then when they see us, they see us acting as unto the Lord. We're going to wait with perspective because it's not that he's not doing anything. He's wooing people to the ship. In the meantime, while we are on the boat, he's changing us and conforming us to the image of the Son and inviting us to invest our time, talents, and treasure back into the people that are still wandering aimlessly around the Statue of Liberty. We have the privilege of doing that. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, know this. There is a place for you on that boat of salvation. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's his heart for you. And he's done everything to make it possible through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And you and I, that ticket onto that ferry is as simple as Jesus. I believe that when you did that, you did that for me and my sins have been paid for. That's the invitation. And somebody along the way, when you came, when those of us who know the Lord came to faith, somebody was praying for you and we have the opportunity to invest that in others. And that's part of the gift of what he's describing. Because one day the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. You know, when God flooded the earth back in Genesis and we, got, we had the covenant with Noah and we had the rainbow, the words were, I will never, I will never uh, judge the world through water again. He didn't say I would never judge the world again. He wouldn't use water. And this time it's coming with fire as all of the bodies melt and burn. Pretty significant. Henry Blackaby and his work experience in God talked about the fact that we, we don't need to go create new things, find where God is at work, and join him there. That's what we do with young lives. That's what we do in the ministries of our church. And that's an opportunity for you. Where's God at work? Join him there. We've got tons of opportunities. You want to serve him? We've got tons of opportunities. But not just within our church walls. We've got them all over the community and beyond. And there's an opportunity. 
So join him. Let's join him in this work that we might hasten the day. Why? Because verse 13, according to his promise, those promises, they didn't expire, but we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Old earth, the earth we're on now, unrighteous. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming that is completely righteous. What does it look like? Caleb shared this verse last week when we were preparing for the Lord's Supper. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now we can talk about where this dwelling place is gonna be and we can talk about what it's gonna look like and what characteristics we can, we can learn about it, but know this, none of them are greater than this. It's the dwelling place of God with us. He will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. That's phenomenal. That's the life that is ahead. Hold on, he's got you. Keep living out holiness and godliness. Keep waiting, keep hastening, but know this is why. This day is coming and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for those things are gone. This is what we have to look forward to. Is it hard? Yeah, it's difficult. We live in a day of false teachers. A couple of weeks ago, I shared this quote with us. They were interviewing a seminary president, and um, his answer is kind of horrific. The question that he was asked was, what happens when we die? What happens? And I want to make it really clear what his words are versus what my words are, because somebody asked me last time, was all of that him? I'm like, yes. So I want to be really clear. When I quit reading, I will say close quotes, okay? <laughs> I don't want anybody to think this is me. Here we go. When asked, what happens when we die? Open quotes. I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about an afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, that's a faith driven by a selfish motive. I'm going to be good so that God will reward me with a stick of candy called heaven? For me, still the quote, for me, Living a life of love is driven by the simple fact that love is true, and I'm absolutely certain that when we die, there is not a group of designated bad people sent to burn in hell. That does not exist. Hell has a symbolic reality that when we reject love, we create hell, and hell is what we see around us in this world today in so many forms. Close quote. We got people running around saying that. Let me tell you, Peter would absolutely take him to task. Anybody else? Maybe that's just Peter. No, author of Hebrews. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting him. Okay, author of Hebrews and Peter. Anybody else? Paul. Romans 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for the Four verses later, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I think we all know that groan. Two verses later, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, the theme of Scripture is that we eagerly are awaiting this God to come back and make all things right. It's coming. Well, I can't point to it. You're right, you can't point to it. 
Has God ever failed on his word? Absolutely not. His promises don't expire. Judgment's coming. And there's two billion people that are completely unevangelized. Judgment's coming. And God's invitation is, will you join me? Will you join me in this work by the way that you live your life, by living under my authority, by following my will, my moral will for you, living that out, waiting patiently, actively pursuing, investing your time, talents, and treasures to hasten this day so that more people come to faith because there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And I will live and dwell with you forever. And while this life is hard, I've got your hand. And I guess the question is, for us to wrap up with, it would be this. He keeps using the words eagerly awaiting. I guess I would ask you, if you're not eagerly awaiting that, what else in life is worth eagerly awaiting? There's nothing else. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.